0: Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. This episode is airing in two parts because there's so much good information that we want to share with you. This is part two, a continuation of our conversation on reproductive rights. I recommend you also listen to part one. Our guest is Andrea Miller. She's the president of the National Institute for Reproductive Health, and is a nationally recognized expert in women's health for more than two decades. Here, we rejoin the conversation. What defines a state with good access to abortion services? So a state with good access would have
1: a good number of clinics, and depending on their population, and can't give you like an exact proportion, but there wouldn't just be one clinic. There would be many clinics in the state. It would be a state that would actually have policies on the books that prevent the violence and harassment that often happens outside of these facilities. It would be a state that makes sure that insurance coverage, whatever kind of insurance you have, can cover the abortion care. It would be a state that doesn't require unnecessary delays, doesn't require doctors to lie to women and give them you know, a lecture. It would be a state that recognizes that young women need to have access to these services and that trying to prevent them from doing so doesn't encourage family communication at all. Uh, We know that the vast majority of young women, when they're facing an unintended pregnancy, talk to their parents. Or if they can't talk to their parents, they talk to another adult that they trust and who they know has their best interests at heart, forcing them to talk to parents when that's not possible for them or requiring them to go before a judge to get permission is not the definition of a state that is making abortion accessible. So there's a whole host of things that states can do, and some states that actually have really good policies in place and have good access. California is probably the best example. Connecticut has some really good policies in place. New York is pretty good, has some things it needs to address, and we're certainly working on that. Delaware uh, has gotten much better. They passed some great laws last year that really have shifted things. Oregon is quite good, and Washington state is moving in that direction. There are other states in the middle that have been doing great things. Illinois has passed some terrific laws. There's possibility for progress in a lot of states right now, especially because people are understanding that this is at risk. About 60% of people now understand that the right to abortion is at risk, and that's a huge increase probably one of the few silver linings of President Trump announcing that he wants to overturn Roe v. Wade and starting to put justices in place that would do that is that people start to see it.
0: And they're paying attention. Mm -hmm. So in the context of reproductive rights being a family issue as opposed to simply a women's issue, what have you found are the messages that work best for men? It's a great question.
1: We know one thing, which is they are almost equally supportive of this issue. There isn't a huge gender gap in attitudes and opinions about the right to abortion, about support for Roe versus Wade. It's pretty even. Some of the kinds of issues or messages or sort of frameworks that work best for them are sometimes slightly different. Obviously, this depends on their political affiliation, right? Because men who were Trump voters versus men who were Clinton voters may have different aspects of the issue that are more motivating to them. Across the board, when they hear about all the laws that have been put in place that shame, pressure, and punish women who've decided to have abortions, they're outraged, too. So men are outraged, as are women. We know that. That's pretty universal. We know that Clinton voters who are men, the idea of women's rights and autonomy is a really powerful one for them. The notion of being able to control one's body, one's future, one's life path, that is part of why abortion rights are so important. That resonates really powerfully. As does the idea that this is healthcare and this is a part of healthcare. So, those are the, the concepts that really resonate, that really speak to men who voted for Clinton in the last presidential election. Trump voters, the healthcare piece is actually a strong one, a strong motivator um, for men who voted for Trump on this issue. The notion of individual rights, again, probably not surprising that that would be important to this group. And there's a piece also around safety and, and, and being able to talk about how the kinds of laws that have been put in place actually undermine safety and the ability to access these services. I think that's a really powerful one. So it's all similar themes, but slightly different, again, depending on one's sort of political tendencies.
0: Right. I can't help but think about how when we think about political candidates now in this time and place, 2018, that Republicans are all anti-choice and Democrats are all pro-choice. And that's not actually true, right? But that's how we perceive of them. And then when we talk about people from these parties, we pin them into these holes. I wonder what would it take, in your opinion, to change the conversation from this party believes this, the other party believes the other, into a discussion about how this is really about health and safety?
1: I think the first thing that it would take is for people to actually start having a conversation about this issue, regardless of political party. Because one of the reasons that there's able to be such a polarization is that the discourse only happens in a very political, often electoral context. And so it becomes an either-or. Politics is binary. Most of the time, there's one choice or another. There's one position or an alternative position. And the reality is, you take the history of this issue— in a lot of the states before Roe v.ersus Wade that made moves to liberalize their laws on this, New York being a great example, it was a Republican who cast the deciding vote to change the laws in New York to liberalize them. It was a Republican governor who signed that into law. And you fast forward to today in Illinois, it was a Republican governor who signed into law the measure that passed this past year that ensures coverage for abortion. So it doesn't have to be partisan. It's a real shame that it's become so partisan because it's not the attitudes of the voters. It really isn't. A public conversation that's about how this matters in people's lives as opposed to solely a conversation in the political realm, I think would actually change the political realm because it would allow for a more nuanced discourse on the
0: issue. Yes, I would agree there. Because we have a vacuum, we don't discuss the issue of abortion at all, basically. I don't ever really do it in my private life, honestly. What are the most damaging misconceptions about abortion nowadays? I think, especially in an environment where people don't talk about it, falsehoods are very easy to spread and also very easy to believe. Absolutely.
1: This notion that people don't agree or don't believe that women should have access to this is one of the most damaging or that we're so equally divided that it's something you can't talk about. I think that's really harmful. It does silence people. And that's not to say that there isn't a lot of societal stigma and shame that's placed on women that they carry with them when they make these decisions. And that's something that I think public discourse could change. When we do focus groups, it's remarkable every single time. Some woman in a focus group will say, you know, I had an abortion. Here was my circumstance. And oftentimes, it'll be the first time she's ever told that story. She's telling that story to perfect strangers, people she's just met that night. In some ways, that's almost easier, I guess, because these are not people that you have an ongoing relationship with, and therefore, maybe there's a safety in that. What that says is that people are really carrying this and want to be able to have that conversation. The misperception that... This is something that happens to other people, that it's not a part of many people's lives, that it's something that shouldn't be talked about because it's so divisive. That's a really problematic misperception. And the notion that the women for whom access to abortion matters are these other women that aren't the women in people's daily lives. I think those are probably the two biggest misperceptions about who are these women who have abortions and What is actually public opinion and people's real attitudes about this? Those two things are probably the most problematic myths that are undermining the ability to be civically engaged in this and realize that it is an issue that you can and should be aware of, learning about, talking to your elected officials about, and voting on. How does the Hyde Amendment fit in? The Hyde Amendment says that any woman who receives her health coverage through the federal government. So this could be particularly low-income women who are eligible for Medicaid, but it's also federal employees. It's women who receive their health care through Indian Health Services. It's women who are in the military or who are dependents of people in the military. If you are abroad, stationed abroad, in a country where abortion is illegal and or unsafe and you need one, you can't get one on a military base. So what's a woman to do? It's really quite extraordinary the kinds of barriers that have been put in place and the unfairness and the added burden that they place I think is something people don't realize unless
0: and until they or someone they know and love needs to have an abortion. One of the things that really blew my mind about this when I first learned about it is that it's a rider. Can you explain what that is? What it means for elections? What it means for voters? and what we can do about it. So the
1: Hyde Amendment um, is actually named for Representative Henry Hyde, who was in Congress for many, many years, a congressman from Illinois. He was probably the sort of leader of the anti-choice movement in Congress for many years. And in the late 70s, when things were pretty good in terms of abortion access, and there weren't that many laws on the books. He was trying desperately to get Congress to adopt uh, what they were calling a human life amendment, which would have changed the Constitution to eliminate women's privacy rights to make these decisions. That was clearly not going to be successful. And so he decided, and he's even, he even stated this, that if he couldn't prevent all women from from having the right to make these decisions. Then he could prevent poor women from having the right to make these decisions. The way he did that was to attach a rider, language in the budget bills that go through Congress. And it started with Medicaid, the health coverage for low-income women. It was language attached every year to the budget in Congress that says that you can't have abortion coverage First, it was the Department of Health and Human Services, and then it got extended to Department of Defense. So all of these different departments and agencies have individual budgets that go through Congress most of the time. Right now, we have a lot of continuing resolutions happening, so we're not doing normal budget processes these days. But still, it's it's language attached that says you cannot cover abortion in these circumstances through these programs. What that means is it happens every year, and that gives opportunity to say... We're not going to do it this year. President Obama actually, in his budget to Congress, stopped putting it in and sort of forced Congress members to make the case and to put it in. So even there, there's power the president has to say, I'm at least going to set a standard. It says, I'm not going to say this should continue. We also saw the power in the early 90s of being able to change it because it's a rider. We weren't able to eliminate it, but... In 93, when we had President Clinton and we had a Congress that was more supportive of reproductive rights, um, the Hyde Amendment changed from being only able to cover abortions if a woman's life was in danger to also adding circumstances for rape and incest survivors. So we got a little bit of a step forward there, and we know that means that there is room. The flip side, unfortunately, is... President Trump and many of the leaders in Congress want to make the Hyde Amendment permanent. They want to create an ongoing statute that would mean that it would be permanent and you'd have to repeal an actual federal law, which is obviously not an easy thing to do. So the fact that it's a a budget rider means we can and should be paying attention to that and can demand every year that they not put it in. You said that Obama did not put it in. So who are the people who put it back in? Unfortunately, the leadership in Congress that are opposed to abortion rights. And during the budget process in the committees,
0: they add the rider in. So it could be something relatively simple, it sounds like, although, of course, it isn't (laughs) since it's been on the books since the 70s. But having said that, I think people don't really understand this. When I first heard about it, I thought, oh. What is this? And then to discover that it's a writer, it's like, well, what does that mean? It's a reminder to all of us who go and vote that we should pay closer attention and vote accordingly. That's right. How did you get into this? How did you get engaged?
1: So I first got engaged in this in the very end of my college years. It was actually a moment in time that feels very reminiscent to me of the current moment we're in. It was the late 80s and early 90s when we had a Supreme Court that was closely divided on abortion rights, that had sent a signal in a case in 1989 that it was ready, willing, and able, if the right case came before it, to overturn Roe versus Wade. So there was this very palpable sense of risk. And the floodgates opened because of that to all of these state laws trying to roll back abortion access and abortion rights. So it was a very similar moment in time as we're facing now. We had a president then who wanted Roe overturned. We had a court poised to say we want to overturn it. We had states doing everything they could think of, including banning abortion outright, to try to force that issue. So it was very palpable for me as um, a young person that this was something that could be Dramatically change my life and all of our lives in the future. And that really was powerful as a just as a motivator as someone who cares and was civically engaged and involved in my community involved on my campus there were all these issues that were so present at that time and I was very active in them but it also touched something even deeper in me because this is very personal in many ways and it's very personal for many people and when I look back and think about my life and what I witnessed as a young person as I was growing up and I'm deeply appreciative and um so moved when I think about my mother and her life. I was so aware from such an early age of how her reproductive decisions and the barriers to being able to make certain decisions so fundamentally altered and shaped her life and her future. My mother's a fascinating sort of case study of this continuum we've talked about. When she got pregnant with me, she was single, she was poor, She was not finished with college, and it was before Roe versus Wade, just barely, but it was still before Roe versus Wade. So she had me as a single mom. She was very clear. She'll, to this day, say that that was absolutely the right decision for her. But my mother's an exquisitely beautiful cellist, and her future could have been very different if she weren't trying to raise a child. And you can't become a musician and raise a kid in that day and age. You just couldn't get paid enough at that point to do that. So that was not an option initially. And then she got married, she had my two sisters. My mother is obviously one of the most fertile people on the planet, because all of us were different birth control method failures. She had one wanted pregnancy that was a miscarriage. And then when I was in college, she thought she was done with her reproductive years. She got pregnant again and had an abortion. And she's very open with us about it. But all of those decisions shaped her life, shaped our lives. For me, it was so important to say she shouldn't have had to make these trade offs because at a certain point, not only was she a single mom of me, eventually she was a single mom of me and my sisters. Being able to make decisions like this are so core, so fundamental, so central to our lives and our futures and our families. And what I love so much about my mother is she's honest and open and always was about this. She doesn't regret a thing. But there's no question that she would say, it should never have been this hard. I've taken that with me. And I think about myself and my sisters and now my nieces. I want... us to be creating a society where we really respect and support women whatever decision they make so that they can be their full selves and so that we can have communities and families that are healthy and moving forward
0: thank you it's clear now that the women who have abortions are the women in our daily lives and not women who exist outside of our inner circle men show equal support for reproductive rights the hyde amendment is a far-reaching rider that limits choices for women who depend on federal health insurance. But it's a rider. That means we don't have to add it to budget bills and it can cease to be a burden on women. Make your opinion and priorities known to your elected representative and be sure you vote in alignment with your values. On the next episode of Future Hindsight, our guest is ai Pooh. She's the executive director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance and the co-director of Caring Across Generations. Like, feel such urgency around this moment of demographic change where
1: we have this enormous generation of baby boomers aging into retirement at a rate of 10,000 people per day. And then as a result of advances in healthcare and technology, people are also living longer than ever before. Right now, over 50 million Americans are providing upwards of 20 hours per week of caregiving for their family
0: members. And we have no program in place that supports these people to be able to afford elder care. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Zumud. Find us online at futurehindsight.us and listen to us through your favorite streaming services.